You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome in once again to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week, and so thankful that you guys are here on our new YouTube channel as you are watching this podcast as well. You can check it out on the Killcliff app and killcliff.com and Killcliff's YouTube channel as well as they are partners with us on this venture as we go into video version of the Hazard Ground. So we thank you guys for joining us here as well. If you're listening to us audio-wise, always we appreciate the continued support. Speaking of support, please continue to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. We are growing. We cracked the top 300 historically in podcasts, which is great. You guys have been a big part of that, so we certainly appreciate it, but we want to crack the top 100 based off of the Apple Podcasts and reviews. So continue to leave those Apple Podcasts and reviews. You can do it right from your smartphone. Really, really easy. As well, don't forget about our website, hazardground.com, and our promotion with Amazon. You can go to that website, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and we donated a percentage of that back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Don't forget to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. On to this week's guest, another member of the Canadian military. He is a master corporal who has multiple deployments and 12 years in the Canadian military. He was awarded the Sacrifice Medal, which is the equivalent of the Purple Heart for the American military for actions in Afghanistan. He currently owns two different companies, Athletic Edge, which is a strength and conditioning company, and he's the co-founder of Canada Top Flight Academy West, which is a prep school for basketball. He is Ian Cantello joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Ian, welcome, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Second member of the Canadian military, and as we were discussing before uh, we started recording, you knew our previous guest, Jeff Tapati, who was the other member of the Canadian military that we've had on. So it's kind of a, I guess Canada is a big place, but small as well. <laughs> yeah, no, Jeff is a great guy. We've had a couple conversations and uh, probably one of the smartest people I think I've ever had a conversation with. So let's start at the beginning for you uh, and how and why you got in the Canadian military. And by the way, I learned a lot from Jeff about the Canadian military. I didn't know everything before, so I know it's a little bit different uh, than the American military. But how and why did you end up in the Canadian Army? I kind of always knew that I was going to join the military. I remember, you know, as a young kid uh, talking to friends and saying, oh, I'm thinking about joining the Army. And, you know, they would kind of talk me out of it or say, no, you don't want to do that. And then maybe three, four or five months later, it would just kind of come back up. And it just kind of was like a cycle of kind of my whole high school kind of time. And then once I was out of high school, there wasn't really, I didn't really have a direction. I was playing basketball, uh, but I wanted some sense of adventure. I wanted to kind of have a purpose. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to travel. I wanted to really, uh, you know, test myself against others and and so I decided that I was going to join the military and, you know, it was one of the greatest decisions I ever made. What year was this that you joined the military? Uh, well, it was 2000 and 2003 is when I kind of decided I was. And then within, you know, 10 months, I was in a place called uh, Borden, Ontario, uh, doing basic training. And uh, I was there for about 10 months. And then I got to a unit. Now, in 2003... America is in two wars, one in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. And at the time, uh, the Canadian military was involved or at least supporting the American military uh, in their efforts. And I know when I was in Iraq in 05, uh, we had Canadian military there. 
was any of that thinking that you were going to be in combat soon? Did any of that deter your thinking at all? It definitely never deterred my thinking. Um, I definitely am a person that grew up wanting a challenge and liking to compete. And uh, I thought, you know, it was my kind of my time. Uh, 9-11 was a huge kind of roadblock in my life. And it definitely left a very long lasting mark. Um, I actually have a, a stopwatch tattooed on my hand that is set to 9-11. It's, it's definitely a big part of my life. Why? I mean, what's, is there, did you know somebody was in the towers or in the Pentagon? Well, my family's actually from uh, New Jersey. We moved, they moved to Canada, Oh wow! Uh, you know, when they were younger. And so uh, there has always been a really big connection. Um, I still have family in New York and Boston and New Jersey. And so there's always been a, a bit of a connection. And so when 9-11 happened, it was just kind of this pivotal moment. Uh, I never thought of it as like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go to war. Um, but I saw it as a time that I wanted to stand up and I wanted to do my part. So wait, do you have dual citizenship? I don't. I'm a Canadian citizen. Oh, okay. All right. I didn't know. I mean, if you didn't know if you were born in, in Jersey, um, anyway, Canada's probably better than Jersey as a guy who's from New York. They don't ever want to, really want to cross the river. So, uh, East Rutherford, New Jersey, that's kind of where we're All right, well, let's go giants then. How's that sound? So, uh, one way or another. <laughs> so you, you sign up and you're in basic training. Was it everything you thought it was going to be? I know basic training for the Canadian military is a little bit different, but were you somebody who sort of studied about what basic training was going to be like? Were you prepared for it physically and mentally? Um, I, I was definitely prepared physically. I, I, played a lot of sports growing up. I was very competitive. I was very active. And so that aspect was never a problem for me as well. Um, kind of the mental grind and the, you know, learning about the military culture wasn't all, also wasn't an issue. Um, I, I kind of grew up uh, with some adversity in my life as a child. And so when it was time to join the army, I, my mom, me and my mom shared an apartment and she went from a two bedroom to a one bedroom. So I didn't have anywhere to go back to. <laughs> So it was, you know, it's time to make it work. Uh, it's a little bit different as far as the rank structure in the Canadian military. I mentioned earlier you were a master corporal and you told me that that's an appointment. So is everybody in basic training a private or the equivalent of a private at that time? Uh, yeah, so private. Uh, yeah, you're a private with uh, no hook. Um, and then and then you get a private with a hook, uh, corporals, and then a master corporal, sergeant, warrant. That's for one officer, chief one officer. Gotcha. So when you finish uh, basic training, where are you headed off to next? Uh, I was going to Edmonton, Alberta. So I was really lucky in the fact that, you know, I joined from Calgary, Alberta, and that I was going to go to Edmonton. Um, at the time, my my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, was going to come with me. So it was nice to stay close to her family uh, and be able to kind of have that, you know, three-hour commute to to visit family on the weekend and still have that that transition into a new career. Now, in America, when we have Army posts, we have them in the South, we have them in the North, on the East Coast, on the West Coast. And so the environment for some of the units that are there train differently. Do these guys train just train snow in, in Alberta? Is that, all, is that all there is? Is it just, you know, snow warfare? Uh, yeah, we do. We definitely do some stuff in the snow for sure. You know, we don't live in igloos or anything like that, but it's, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, every October, November, you know that you're going to be in the field. So, you know, you could get summer to full blown winter. Um, I know when I did my primary leadership qualification, uh, that's the course you have to take to get your master corporals. Um, it was in, we did a field exercise of seven days, no sleep. Um, and that was in December and it was 
you know, minus 45, minus 50. Um, so it is, it's very cold. I remember at a point, you know, so tired, delusional, uh, hallucinating, um, and it's, you know, minus 50. And you're like, if I stand still, I'll probably freeze to death. Are, are you thinking at that point you made a bad decision? Probably should have just uh, been an electrician or a plumber or something or a hockey player. You know, I mean, <laughs> no, I want yeah. Like when I joined the army, I, I definitely found like a, I felt like I found my, my, you know, my niche in life. I found that thing that I was good at. Uh, I know like a lot of soldiers will say, you know, you drop me in any time in history, you drop me with the Vikings, you drop me with the Templars and I'll, and I'll make it work. Uh, I'm definitely a soldier at heart and I love my time in the military. That's interesting. Uh, if you put me in world war two, I'm running like chicken shit. Like it just get me. I mean, I, I have, I'm glad we have the technology we have now. Um, I took a lot of dumb chances in combat because I kind of felt protected by all the stuff that I had, uh, a Springfield rifle that I have to like reload every six seconds. Now nah, I'm out. Sorry. See ya. Uh, that's not me. Everybody's got the same kit. <laughs> it's a level playing field. I mean, I guess so. the warfare is completely different. The tactics are different. Um, but soldiers are soldiers. You put right. us wherever we need to be and we're going to do what we need to do. All right. So after you finish basic, you go to, uh, back to Alberta, what's next for you? I mean, I know you have one deployment to Pakistan, but other deployments, uh, through the Canadian military. So where are you headed next? Yeah, so I, so when I got to Edmonton, um, I happened to get there when the the unit was on. Uh, de- they were deployed to the field, so I kind of spent the first twenty one days up until Christmas by myself and a couple other broken guys. So it was a very weird kind of idea of like this is what the unit's going to be like. This is what day to day is going to be like. Um, but then after Christmas break, you know, everybody was back, and then it was kind of got, you know, I got to know everybody, and it was totally different. It was. It, to be honest, it was nice to kind of get there and not be chaotic so I could kind of get my feet under me. So what are you starting to do? I mean, are you training to deploy somewhere or are you just kind of doing garrison operations for lack of a better term? Yeah. So the first day I got to Afghanistan, um, our rotation had just come back. So they were in their tan combats. Um, the very first day I was there, I look over and I see these guys kind of just coming back. The, in the Canadian military, your, your first day back on ground, first day back in the unit, you wear tan combats just so that everybody knows kind of your, your rolling back in and, to, and how to treat you and things like that. Uh, so, you know, that was my first introduction was going on parade, seeing those guys and, and knowing, yeah, like this is real. Uh, eventually it's going to be my turn. That's interesting. I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you've ever seen the American military on our pat, our, our American flag patch, if you've ever seen this, it, it looks backwards to the uh, to, to to everybody. It used to be prior to 9-11, the patch you would wear was a regular American flag. If you deployed, when you came back, it flipped around. And people always ask, well, why is the flag backwards? Well, if you kind of look at an American flag, if you're holding it sort of running towards the enemy... That's what it looks like. So it showed that you were in a forward deployed zone. That is, that's very American. That used to be the signal that somebody had deployed until in the post 9-11 world, everybody started wearing combat patches and everything else. And everybody was wearing, because the whole nation was at war, everybody was wearing it that way. um, And the flag looks backwards. But it used to be that the, the, the American flag would look normal on your sleeve if you hadn't deployed. When you had come back, it would be flipped to show everybody that you had, you had done that. It just kind of, kind of triggered... Uh, for the audience and the non-military folks listening who haven't been around long enough, there might be some yeah. uh, you know guys in the American military who are who are too young to know that. That just goes to show you how old yeah. I am. 
I think in uh, the Canadian military, there's always that quote of the quiet professional. And it's something that, you know, a lot of Canadian militaries, uh, Canadian military members really kind of live by. And so when the guys come back, you know, you get one day in your tans and then you're just back like everybody but else. Why do, you, why do you think there was such reverence for those who had deployed and come back? I mean, did that seem, did that strike you as a little bit odd or is that something that seemed, it was like, you know, as you said, those guys have been there, done that. And next is going to be my turn. Uh, well, yeah, I, I lived every day, basic training, uh, trades training, all that kind of stuff. I lived every day, like with the goal that I was going to go overseas and I was going to, you know, I was going to pull my weight and do my part. And so when I came back, you know, up to that point, I'd only, only ever seen green combats. I'd only ever seen guys in cat pad. So uh, that first day at the unit, seeing guys uh, rotating back um, and seeing them in tans, it's like, yeah, like, that's the real deal. I want to, I want to do that. I want to be a part of that. That's kind of my next goal. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I mean, you realize what you're asking for, right? Like you, you, you're, you're willfully wanting to walk into a combat zone. That never struck you as something that, even now in retrospect, that you've been injured. Uh, no. <laughs> that was never something that goes, you know, maybe no, I should I was, have been so I was young. Like, I still had the cloak of invincibility. Man. I, didn't, I didn't think I was ever going to get hurt or anything was going to happen. I thought I was just going to, you know, do my thing. And, um, you know, as a kid growing up too, I didn't really have a lot of reference for the military. I have some cousins that are in the Marines. My grandfather was in the Marines. Um, but other than that, you know, I didn't, I just had this kind of romanticized idea of what it was going to be like. Uh, and so when I got there and I was starting to get the real kind of picture, um, not that it changed kind of like the allure, but it was definitely changing shape, right? Like it, it was transitioning from, um, oh, I want to go because I want to have this experience to, oh, I want to go because I've been training with these guys for the last two years and I want to go with them. I want to experience this with them. So was Afghanistan your first deployment? Yes. When do you get there? Um, I got there in, I want to say April of 2009. Okay. Like um, I, I spent about 10 and a half months uh, in Afghanistan. And um, so I would have been like the equivalent of a uh, 88 Mike, but I was part of uh, the, the way the, the military structures in Canada, we have what's called battle groups. And okay. so uh, everyone just kind of comes together, you put together and then that's what you do. Um, so in, in Afghanistan, I, I was a QRF driver uh, that did uh, recoveries for, you know, 10 and a half months. All right, so you're chopping at the bit to get there. It takes you six years. Are, are, is there a point where you're like wondering, is this ever going to happen for me? Yeah, I remember. Um, I remember getting an old group and they saying, "Hey, we're looking for volunteers to go on this roto." And I and I go up to and I talk to my warrant, "Hey, I want to go." Uh, and he says, "You know, it's not with our unit, right? You're going to go with someone else." And I said, "I don't care. I just want to go." And then it kind of laughs at me and shoes me out the office and. And then I just keep waiting. So I, I, but what I ended up doing is that I did, uh, which I'm very fortunate in doing is that I did workup training basically for, for years on end. Like every, every year I was spending five to eight months in the field preparing to go to Afghanistan. Cause I was either um, on workup training that got shut down or I was uh, enemy force for another group that was going, or I was support for another group that was going. So I really got to get a very good grasp on the, the quality of training and um, my field craft and an idea of what I needed to do in my role for when I did deploy. When is the first time you hear about going prior to 2009? And what are you hearing about what your mission might be and where you might go? Uh, yeah, so they were, they were putting the brick together. Um, and so I knew that I was going. My name was on the list. And, you know, they were standing the group up to do workup training. And so 
I, as long as I knew I was going, as long as I didn't get injured or if something didn't pull me off the, off the tour. So I knew that that was going to be my chance was 2009. And so I was extremely excited. Um, I was very fortunate. And when I did my workup training for 2009, um, I, I was with the battle group and I went with one other guy that's uh, my trade. And we spent uh, kind of eight months together to preparing to go overseas and then once we did deploy, the two of us stayed together for the 10 and a half months while deployed. So I kind of had this like uh, blanket of comfort. I had my, you know, my best friend, the guy that I still talk to every, you know, every couple of days. Now I talk to him on the phone an hour um, before this, just to kind of let him know what's going on in my life. So yeah, um, it's, it's just one of those things, right? That camaraderie and that brotherhood really gets, gets built during uh, workup training. Did you know exactly where you were going in Afghanistan before you left? No, no idea. So when I, uh, when I deployed to Afghanistan, I ended up at CAF, like uh, most people. Um, and I was there for, I want to say two weeks. And then I got an opportunity to go, uh, to reattach to the battle group and go to a FOB. And I, and I jumped all over it and it was with that, that my friend, Brent McInnes. So, um, we both knew that we were going to the FOB. And so we were excited. It was supposed to be a three week rotation, uh, to be part of the QRF. And then it ended up being 10 and a half months. Oh, wow. (laughs) So it's quite the extension. Um, so when you get when you get to where you're going, what are you told about what your mission is? Did you know you were going to be sort of QRF at, at the time heading in? Uh, no, I didn't know that I was going to be part of the QRF. I just knew that um, once we hit the ground, we would kind of shake out as to what was happening. Uh, I was really fortunate with my uh, you know my leaders that they had a lot of faith in me and that I could do my job and I could you know I could push out to a battle group or I could stay in camp or I could do whatever. I was very fortunate that I got the opportunity to be off the leash for ten and a half months, and so yeah, I, w- I wouldn't change any any part of it. So you get to where you're finally settled for the extended duration of the deployment, day to day life. What what is it like for you? I mean, I know what it's like for the American military, but I, I mean. I would imagine it's the same. It's Groundhog's Day, so to speak, for the most part. But uh, is it is it any different? Do you guys have any you know different level of responsibilities? Um, no, like I think so. For, for like for the first ones, the first convoy I went on, like you got to remember that there's a lot of interaction that happens between the Canadian and the U.S. military right. while deployed in Afghanistan. That was my next question. The area <laughs> that we were in Panjway district. So in Panjway there is a Canadian FOB and an American FOB both across the Argandab river from each other. And so we were in support of each other at all times. And then with an ANA base kind of in the middle. Um, so I spend a lot of the time with attached to American infantry or um, at um, a like FOB ramrod FOB terminator. So I'd spend a lot of time kind of in that area, but um, we would kind of, our home base was uh, FOB Massengar and that was a Canadian FOB which was eventually taken over by the, uh, by the Americans. Were you um, upset you weren't co-located with the American military? I mean, upset's not the right word. Were you surprised you weren't co-located or? Uh, no, uh, I think for the QRF, we were kind of right where we needed to be. Um, so on the other side of the Argonaut River was uh, Fob Wilson and Fob Wilson was the, the artillery base, right? So they were in support of everybody. And then we were at Fob Massengar kind of in the heart of that area. So we were in the middle of kind of everything. Um, so yeah, no, I wasn't, I wasn't upset. I, I was glad at the, the size of the camp we were at. There was, you know, 130 people there. It's like not big, but it's not small. So it, it's kind of the, the right size. You know, you have all the amenities. And you're kind of, a, you know, a footstep away from the action. Right. Um, 
As far as the QRF is concerned, now for civilians listening, the QRF, your whole purpose in life is to wait for something bad to happen to somebody else, and then you go in and come and save the day, so to speak, right? Like that's just generally what the the role is. So how often were you actually responding to things? What was the sort of operational tempo? How much contact were, were you guys receiving? And just clarify, were you QRF for only Canadian forces or were you QRF for all... NATO sort of allies at that point. Yeah, so we were definitely QRF for the Canadian military with uh, overlapping supports for any um, any allies um, and kind of anybody in that area, anywhere in our AO, we would kind of help out. Um, but as for you know the temple, the very first time I was uh, the convoy that brought us from CAF dropped us off at Massengar. Uh, as soon as we got out of the trucks, we had a rocket attack. And I remember um, like hugging, like kind of hiding behind my friend um, in front of me, Dougie Nash, and having, you know, uh, having the white phosphorus all over his tack vest and all over his shirt, burning his arms. So, you know, my first second on the ground at the FOB, you know, we were in contact. So you get this this sort of awakening. Um, hey, I'm finally here. I finally made it to combat. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it, and it was it was very regular, uh, you know, like most fobs, we'd have rocket hours and things like that. We were kind of tucked away and we would have, you know, rocket attacks regularly. Um, we actually we would have an American infantry unit that would kind of come in and out of our fob um, pretty regularly a couple times a week. And we always knew, like, if the Americans were there, we we're going to shot at. So it's just <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the bullet magnets. Um I was just wondering, but, you know, you, you get this first taste of combat and you've been begging for six years to get to this moment. Afterwards, you're like, OK, um, time to go home now or what? Like, I mean, what's your first reaction to it, all of it? Oh, yeah, definitely had an adrenaline rush and um, it kind of just hit the side of the mountain. Like, Bob Massengar is, is basically it's a, a mountain that it's kind of surrounding the camp on three sides. It's called the Catcher's Mitt. Um, and so it was kind of a mountain with uh, the base kind of built up it. Uh, and so, yeah, it was always called the, you know, the catcher's mitt because the, you know, the Taliban would set up rockets and shoot them into the camp. And we really had no, no way to defend ourselves away from, uh, from it. You said it happens a lot uh, as far as the amount of contact you guys got in. Um, is there any specific moment prior to your particular injury where you kind of feel like, uh, you know, this is too close for comfort or, um, Hey, I almost died or, or that was a close one sort of deal. Like, I mean, is it, are you in enough action where those sort of emotions and thoughts are, are starting to creep into your head? No, I had, I kind of had came to terms with the fact that I was probably going to see something happen. Um, there was multiple occasions where I was being shot at while I was doing work, multiple occasions where, um, like one night, uh, walk into the showers, the showers blew up from a rocket and then have to go back and hide and things like that. So it's, yeah, like, uh, I yeah, I kind so of, when your shower turns that, into a toilet just by accident. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's, it's just kind of like, that's, that was the life and it became normalized. Um, it's weird. It's hard to explain to a lot of people that, you know, I, I have post-traumatic stress disorder. However, I do not have post-traumatic stress disorder from any, uh, any incident that happened to me specifically. Uh, I don't have it from being blown up. I don't have it from being shot at. None of those things. What I have, I have it from uh, 10 and a half months of prolonged minimal stresses. Um, it's like that, you know, walking on eggshells 
eggshells feeling for 10 and a half months. Um, people, I try to, you know, ask, they ask like, oh, how do you explain what it was like? Well, you know that feeling you get right before you get into a fist fight where you're excited and nervous and anxious and you have all those emotions. Now try to picture holding on to that for 10 and a half months. It's extremely warping. And then uh, a person like me, I'm, I'm very wired for protection, protection of my friends, protection of my loved ones. And so, um, you know, just like, you know, being in a combat zone, you're going to see friends go through adversity and hardships. And those are the things that I found to be the most warping or the most um, struggles or the most adversity I had to deal with, especially transitioning out of the military. So let's talk about your particular injury uh, and the day that it happened. Uh, what were the events leading up to it? And, and kind of give me the circumstances of what you went through. Yeah, so uh, we got a call that we were going to, we're going out and we we're going to do a leaguer outside of another uh, cop. Um, they, were, they were placing some snipers up on top of a guard. And so we were doing a leaguer at the base just to kind of uh, have a distraction. Now, what do you, what do you, um, so, what do you when you say leaguer, what are you referencing? Uh, so leaguer is like an um, like an iron circle. I don't know what. You, yeah, so what I was you, wondering if what we what the American uh, equivalent was to it. So just explain it. Yeah, so it's uh, you know your tanks and your uh, labs and all your armored vehicles uh, in a circle with like support in the middle and um, arcing fires and things like that. So uh, we had kind of working our way into the leaguer while they were you know placing the snipers up on the guard and. And uh, we happened to hit our lead tank with rollers, hit uh, an IED. Uh, so, you know, we started to stop for a while. Um, and then, uh, but, it, but it was still serviceable. And then we were moving up further to try to get into place again. And another, we hit another IED. Um, kind of in, we were on, on location for about 13 hours um, dealing with, we ended up striking eight IEDs. I personally hit three. Um, and in that time, you know, I, I broke my, broke my wrists, uh, really hurt my, I hurt my neck really bad. I, uh, it swelled up so bad that, you know, I, I pinched some nerves and lost some feeling in my hands and, you know, things like that. But so we were working our way into this leaguer. Um, and then it just kind of like bang. And then there we would kind of work some things out. Okay. We're going to move forward now. Bang. And then we're, and we just kind of kept going like that for a while. Um, I had stopped to recover one of the battle damaged vehicles, uh, put it on my truck. And just as I was a, about to pull back onto the scrape, so the scrape was uh, uh, one of the tanks had a blade on the front and it would uh, go through the field. And, and if anything was there, it would hopefully uh, make it go off in a safe area. Um, and so as I was uh, maneuvering my vehicle to get back onto the scrape, I hit, that's when I hit the first IED. So I straddled it with the vehicle and then I hit it with the trailer. Um, so I was driving what's called an AHSVS. Uh, it's a tractor trailer, um, 53 foot tractor trailer. And it's, you know, weighed about 80 tons and it lifted it about eight feet off the ground. Um, and so when it lifted me up and dropped me back down, I felt like um, I felt like Yahtzee dice in a Yahtzee cup getting sh shaken around and I, but I never let go of the steering wheel. Like I had a, you know, a grip on the steering wheel and that's how really how I kind of had the majority of my injuries as well as, you know, I was just trying to position back into the, into the group. So I, my tack vest flew up in the air and hit me in the face and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then I also had a co-driver in the vehicle with me who uh, sustained some shoulder injuries and things like that. Um, but I just remember hitting that first one, and it was a, it was, it was a very weird feeling because I, 
I, I felt it. And then as my head kind of rotated, I seen the flash and then I kind of got, then I got thrown all around and then landed and everything kind of, and then there was just like this really kind of eerie quiet. And we were just sitting there and I turned to my, uh, my co-driver and I was like, are you okay? And he goes, I think so. Are you okay? And I said, I think so. And then we just high five. Like it was just this huge adrenaline rush uh, with broken hands. <laughs> Did you know instantly what it was or it took you a couple of minutes to grab your bearings about you? No, I knew exactly. Like as soon as I felt the percussion go through, because um, that's another part of like, our workup training is we do uh, percussion training. So we, they set off, um, you know, bombs so that you can kind of have an idea of what it's going to feel like. Uh, so when it did go off, I knew exactly what it was. Um, at the time, I thought it was a lot smaller than it was. And I remember even uh, seeing kind of like shrapnel go and there was a tank that had done the scrape and there's guys exposed and, you know, seeing things kind of like rush by them. And so, you know, I was, again, like I was more worried that I had, I had set, a, set something off that was going to injure somebody else. So that's, I mean, we have... Similar training in the American military as far as what you call percussion training. Now, uh, I don't know that we have one that actually sets a bomb off, but, I, you know, we simulate the noise. We can simulate sort of the um, reverb, if you will. We have rollover training where you can, you know, be flipped upside down in a vehicle. So, you know what that is like. But I got to tell you, I mean, when an IED hits a vehicle, I think the two things that, that can't be replicated or one, the sound of that crunch of metal, um, I think is, is something that like that noise, I still hear it in my right ear. It was on the right side of my vehicle when I got hit. And to this day, I know exactly what that sounds like when it explodes and you can hear metal actually crunch. Um, that, and then shrapnel is the other thing, you know, like you can't be prepared for shards of glass and rock and metal and everything to come flying at you. There, there's, there's no way to train for that. Um, that doesn't involve Hollywood, you know? <laughs> so no. uh, it's it's uh, it's just interesting because um, those are some of the things I think, especially as you talk w- about PTSD, you know, uh, the the feeling when the shrapnel first hits you or, or as I said, the sound, those kind of things just stick with, at least they stick with me. Yeah, no, it was... <sighs> Maybe I'm fortunate. It's not, it's not something that I've ever kind of had like a second thought about. I've never really kind of had this, um, you know, this anxiety or nervousness or, you know, flashbacks based off IEDs that I hit. Um, I still like, I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember those feelings. I remember those sounds. I remember kind of all of those things. Like I remember it vividly. It was uh, nine days before my birthday as well. Like I, re- I remember so many details about it. Uh, however, I, I, I don't find that it is uh, one of the things that kind of keeps me up at night. All right. So uh, right after this IED explodes, you guys are okay. You give each other a limp wristed broken high five. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, what's next? <laughs> Uh, so then next, I, um, um, I, I, our medics were kind of checking me out. I got out of my vehicle. I walked over to the medics. I got in there. They were checking me out. They asked me how I feel. I felt. I said, you know, I, I, I feel fine. Like, I feel a little sore, but I think I'm supposed to feel sore at this point. Um, so I just, and then I got back in my vehicle, and we were like, okay, we're going to line back up to get going again. And, you know, um, Mark, sorry, I got to back up. So we were in the, the lab uh, medic vehicle, and as it moved forward, it hit a night. Um, and then so um, then it was like, okay, well, you know, we're, everybody's fine. Uh, 
And then I got out and I got back into my vehicle. And as I kind of pulled out again, I hit another one on the trailer. Um, and so it's, it was kind of like one of those things where you're like, Oh, am I going to, are we going to get out of this? Like, are we going to be stuck here all day? How are, what are we going to do next? Like, should we move? Like, what are we going to end? And at this point it'd been kind of like 13 hours, uh, 14 hours. It was, it was dark. Um, so we're trying to do this, you know, night vision and all this types of stuff. And it was, you know, finally this, this, the battle captain made the decision that we were just going to go white light and we were just going to get out of there. So I ended up just, uh, dragging the trailer to the cop, um, dropping it off. And then we went back to our fob, uh, for the night. And I just remember getting back to the fob and it was like having kind of hadn't eaten all day. Um, I was, you know, feeling a little off, but, um, but happy to be back. And when I got back, you know, my friend Brent was there to kind of greet me and, you know, see how I was doing and things like that. And then it, and then it was like, okay, uh, I can tell you, you can go to sleep. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm not going to sleep. Like, how am I going to go to sleep? <laughs> so it was like, I want to say it was probably four days before I got a full night's sleep again. Uh, I was just like, my adrenaline was just kicking so hard. Um, but they said, yeah, it's time for you to go to sleep. So I went to my, uh, went to my CCAM I uh, just kind of laid down with my eyes open, vibrating for hours. And then finally in the morning, uh, we got O group that we were going to go, re- I, I was going to go recover my own vehicle, which is, uh, was a very uh, strange feeling, uh, knowing that I was going right back to the place where, you know, less than 12 hours ago, I uh, had just been blown up, but I was going to go back there to recover the vehicle that I was blown up in. So this is definitely a strange feeling. Um, but we kind of spent the day uh, doing the recovery, got it back to camp, and, um, and yeah. You know, a lot of people may be thinking right now that you are the world's unluckiest man uh, as far as hitting three IEDs. <laughs> I, I Listen, my experience in combat is telling you, you're the luckiest SOB I've met because you ran into the world's shittiest IED maker because you hit three of them. And everybody seemed to be fine, relatively speaking. Like, you know, these things are designed to kill multiple people at the same time. And apparently you rolled over three of them that had absolutely no, none of the intended effect. Yeah. And, and, and I remember being like there and asking, uh, we had an uh, EOD team and asking like, what was it? You know, all that kind of stuff. And talking to him the next day and a couple of days later, you know, and then finally they were able to tell us like, you know, how big it was and what it was made out of and all that kind of stuff. So it was very, it was very interesting. How big was it? Just out of curiosity, you know? Uh, well, he said four anti-tank mines, four uh, 20-liter jugs of diesel, and it was uh, two metal bowls. So uh, when the two bowls collapsed and touched each other, that was the detonation. Yeah, four jugs of, uh, of, of fuel make quite the ball of explosion. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Fire for effect, uh, I guess, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and then it was like uh, the idea, like they went back the next day, the EOD team went back and they cleared where we were. And they said that we were in uh, like a Patriot square. So so you go back, did you actually end up going back to recover the vehicle? Yeah, I went back the next day, recovered the vehicle, brought it back to our camp. So you don't sleep for a couple of days. Um, are you... You know, I mean, is part of it adrenaline, but is, is the other part of it, hey, I almost just died and, uh, you know, I need to get out of here kind of deal? Or what sort of emotions or are you sort of just stoic through the whole thing? Uh, yeah, like I, I felt sore. Like I was definitely felt sore, but I thought that I was supposed to feel sore. Like I 
had a pretty good jarring. So I was like, yeah, like, I think this is kind of how I'm supposed to feel. Uh, but there definitely was a huge adrenaline factor. Um, and then as that adrenaline started to kind of wear off after a few days, then I was like, yeah, like something's definitely not right. Uh, I said, my neck is continually swelling. Um, I'm starting to have tingling sensations. I'm just, you know, my hands aren't working properly. And so I decided that I was going to go to the, the medics on, on our fob and, you know, they, they, all they said was, you know, we don't have any x-rays here, you know, obviously something's wrong, but unless we medevac you, you, you kind of have to stay. And I thought, you know, I, I do not want to be medevac. Like I don't want to go back to CAF um, under these circumstances. I want to just kind of continue what I'm doing. And so I, um, I ended up staying, I think for another uh, two weeks on the fob. Um, and I was still doing, um, I was still going out on operations and still doing missions and things like that. And it was definitely, um, a struggle. Like it, I, I felt it very difficult to shift gears. I felt it very difficult to uh, load and clear my weapon. I felt like I, I was just in a lot of pain. Um, and, but at, at that point it was like, I don't want to say anything now. Like it's been this long. Like why, why say it now? Um, and I, so I just wanted to kind of, and the other part is that I, uh, I had my Christmas uh, HLTA coming up 18 days off mid tour coming up. And I was like, you know, I can just kind of like make it to then. Um, and, oh, and I also skimmed over a very critical part of this whole uh, <laughs> thing with my wife uh, in the communication factor. Um, you didn't tell so, her, obviously. <laughs> well, I, I, initially I didn't tell her. Um, my boss had called her and told her that something had happened, but that I was okay, but they didn't have a lot of information, but they would get back to her and they kind of fill her in. And so, uh, the next day I was able to call her. Well, the same day I was able to call her uh, and I said, yeah, you know, I'm okay. Um, and then the phone lines were cut because there was a casualty. And so there was no communication, uh, for about four or five days. And at that point, that was when I was starting to kind of really start to feel pain and I was starting to really kind of start to go through the struggles. And so when I finally was able to talk to her again, I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. That was nothing. Um, but when I flew home for HLTA, I had a neck brace on and casts on and all that kind of stuff. So I thought she was going to kill me in the airport. <laughs> How far into your deployment does all this happen? Uh, yeah, it was kind of, it was, it was midway. Okay. Uh, cause up there. Um, like we were on a winter tour, so, uh, we got there kind of like in, the uh, September, I think. Yeah. And then by December we hit and then Christmas, I was supposed to go home for Christmas, but I had switched, um, my, my lead block with a friend of mine who had kids at the time, uh, cause I didn't want to be home for Christmas and him to be in Afghanistan missing his kids. So we switched lead blocks and then, um, uh, and that's another aspect of this that, you know, of, of, of being injured really the part that um, really stuck with me was um, talking with my friend, Doug Nash, uh, also at the very beginning, first day, got the white phosphorus on his uh, attack vest. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided that we were going to switch lead blocks and so that he could go home to see his daughter. Um, and then kind of like a week after I was supposed to go home, uh, that's when I hit the IED. And I, and I just remember how devastated Dougie was and, you know, how, he, you know, he felt bad and, you know, he felt remorseful and he felt all those things. And that's what really sticks with me more than uh, my personal injuries. Yeah. But I, I, you know, we, we discuss the randomness of combat all the time. I mean, it, yeah. there's just, 
There's no, there's no guarantee that had you gone on leave, that something wouldn't have happened at another point in time. I mean, there's just no, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And, and, and look, I, I get it. I mean, I, if I was your friend, Doug Nash, I would feel guilty about it too, you know, but in the same respect, um, we can't tell you the, the countless number of times where somebody chose that and it ended up saving their life. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it works both ways. So, um, it, you know, not that I'm sitting here telling anybody how to feel, but you know, those, those emotions objectively are wasted emotions because there's really nothing. The enemy gets a say too, right? They always have, and they always will. And so from that standpoint, you have very little control over those things. No. And that's a very good saying. Like it feels like I, I tell people on tour, it felt like, um, uh, combat felt like a sucker punch at all times. It felt like I was in a bar and I got sucker punched. Like that's really, cause you know, a majority of the times we weren't, uh, dictating the action we were uh, on the receiving end and then um, you know reacting to the threat and, and moving forward so you're continuing to have pain um, you go home and you're in a neck brace and everything else um, do you is your wife telling you first of all don't go back you're, you're crazy or I mean at what point in time do you start to you know get the medical attention for your physical ailments that you need uh, so I, I remember before I left um, so like I said, like, uh, it had been a while and I hadn't really talked about, you know, having these pains. And I, and I remember, uh, vividly being on calf and I was supposed to go home in, you know, two, about two weeks and like, just, just my hands were just so painful. And I said, you know what? I told my roommate at the time, like, I'm going to the hospital because I need to get these checked out. Like it's getting, my hand had swollen up that night. It was like the size of a football. I said, you know what? Today's the day. So I went and I got a cast um, put on and they're asking me all these questions. Why did you wait so long? Things like that. And I just said, you know, I just wanted to do my job. I didn't want to complain. I wanted to, you know, do what I was meant to do. And then leaving, I remember leaving the hospital and my warrant officer was standing outside the hospital. And he's like, if you want to go home, you should have just said so. <laughs> and being like, well, that's not what's going on. Right. I just went to get checked out. Right. Um. So you got another couple of months left after you get back. Now, do you finish the deployment and cast and neck brace and everything else? No. So I was fortunate. They, uh, when I left the, the, the doctor's office, they said, you can't come back to Afghanistan if you still have these casts on. And I said, okay. So I went home. I did my, I did my two weeks at calf and then I did kind of three weeks, uh, in Canada. And then at that point, uh, they came off and I said, I don't care what's going on. I'm going back to work. And so did you go back to Afghanistan at that point? Yeah, went back to uh, after wow. my uh, and and kind of the whole time I was like, talking to my wife like I'm going back like there's no question I'm not I'm not this is not how my my tour ends this is my kind of one kick in the can this is my like at that point I was like I was so dedicated to what was going on uh, my best friend Brent McKinnis was still at the FOB and it was like I'm I'm going back like there's no question uh, and so the cast came off neck brace came off flew back to Afghanistan. Um, uh, I was back at CAF and my platoon commander asked, okay, what are you going to do for the rest of the tour? And I said, I want to go back to the FOB. And then, so I went back and, and that's, and then I finished out the rest of my tour there. Did people think you were crazy for coming back? People think I was crazy. People thought I was crazy before. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I've always just been like uh, that, you know, that quiet professional, that guy that just kind of does what needs to be done. I don't complain. I don't, I don't ask for anything more than what I've earned. It's that's what it is. 
And I, I, I was, I was, I was fortunate. Like I, I'd been at the FOB. I, I'd done a good job. They wanted me back. Um, my, my leadership agreed that I, you know, I could fit the role and I'd done a good job. And the other thing is that people didn't want to be part of the QRF. Like it's not a glamorous job. It's right. not. And, and I, and I knew going there, I'm like, okay, what's the shittiest job I could get? Like, what is the, what's the job that nobody else wants? And it was the QRF. And I said, fine, I'll do that for 10 and a half months. Beats cleaning latrines, I guess. Right. Um, (laughs) Well, look, I I understand the whole concept of wanting to finish out what you signed up for. Right. Like I I don't, yes, on a surface, it sounds crazy and everything else, but I get it. I understand it. It's that those decisions, I, I don't really fault anybody either way. If somebody said, look, man, I just broke both my hands. My neck's all jacked up. You know, I need to take care of myself. I've got uh, the rest of my life to live. And by the way, in your 20s, everybody in combat never thinks they got the rest of their life to live. Um, so different discussion, obviously. But um, no, no, I don't think any right person would fault you for tending to physical injuries that you sustained while you were there. But in the same respect, I always understand people's desire. Look, I signed up for a deployment. It's supposed to be six months. I want to do six months because that's a level of commitment that I have. And that's what I meant. To, uh, you know, I signed up to do. So I'm going to do that. Um, so I, so I get both, I get both of them, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's, there's any judgment either way. Um, but when you get back from Afghanistan, uh, are, are you trying to go back for a second time or did you have enough fill at that point in time? Um, so when I got back from Afghanistan, like uh, end of 2009, 2010, it was really kind of starting to ramp down. Like there was the, the constant talk of, uh, we're going to close down, we're going to pull out. And so I was like, yeah, I don't that's not really what, what I wanted to do. Like if I'm going, I want to go. Cause it's like, now when you, you say know, we're going to pull out, you meant the Canadians, right? Cause you know, yeah. there was we're never out. any talk of us getting out of there. No, like we, and that, and that's what I said. Like uh, the fob we were at fob Massimgar, we handed over to the Americans. Like when we were leaving at the end of our rotation, it was kind of, um, you know, it was going from our duty of care to their duty of care. And so there, there was never going to be that deployment again. And I, I uh, so you, I hear about it all the time. Uh, there's always the, like the good old day talk, like, Oh, I miss playing high school sports or I miss, um, college or I miss, and it's like, you can never go back. You can never go back to that moment that you had, that you enjoyed and you, and you hold so dear to yourself. You can't go back. Like you can, you can think about it. You can reminisce, but that's it. It's over. It's time to move on. And so at that point when it was, yeah, uh, Canadians were pulling out the only place you can be is, at calf, I don't want to wear a PT belt everywhere I go. And I don't want to be walking around with people eating ice cream cones. That's not how I want to spend a tour. Don't forget Burger King and green beans. I mean, that's right. No, I don't want any of that. I want to sleep in the desert. I want uh, stuff going sideways. I want, I wanted that. Like I wanted, I wanted my opportunity to prove myself. I wanted to do my job to the fullest of my ability. Yeah. For the civilians, by the way, like I'm just talking about all the little food court options that we have on all the fobs. If yeah. Green, green, bean. Bean. green bean was my favorite. Green beans coffee is not bad. That's where I kind of had, look, I never drank coffee in life because I thought that something that smelled that good, how could it taste that bad? But you know, <laughs> when you have to stay up for hours on end, you just kind of start drinking it um, because everybody else says it works and yes, it does. And so, uh, yeah. you know, that's where I got my first that's, kick of coffee was green. I understand is where I picked up two terrible habits, uh, chewing tobacco and, uh, a, a ridiculous coffee addiction. Yeah. I mean, are you really a soldier if you don't drink coffee and put tobacco on your lip? I mean, it's a rite of passage, I think. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, all right. So, I, 
I, I missed, I missed the fob. Like um, it's hard to explain, like uh, you know, having those moments where, you know, I'm doing a recovery and I'm being shot at and someone's yelling, get off that trail. And it's like, well, I got to do this or we can't move and we're under contact. So we need to finish this to move or, you know, watching uh, Kiowa firefights or, you know, explosions going off in the distance and, you know, rockets and all, like, I, I wanted all that. I didn't, I didn't want to like go to Afghanistan and have this safe um, bubble wrapped, you know, rounded corner experience. I wanted what it was meant to be. When you get back and you, you know, you're not going back again. Um, do you feel like that's the end of the line for you from the military standpoint? What more did you want to accomplish as far as being in the Canadian military? No, I definitely, uh, at the time I thought that it was going to be my life. I thought that I was going to be a career soldier and that that was my kind of like my calling. So when I came back from Afghanistan, I rotated into what, um, what's called LFWA. Uh, so it's like a, a training debt. Uh, so we would do uh, basic training and we would do uh, soldier qualification training and uh, vehicle qualifications and things like that. So I was just, I was an instructor for two years and that was really kind of, um, that was my transition into getting uh, promoted. Um, and then once I got promoted, it was a posting and I got posted to a place called Wainwright, Alberta. Uh, so if you could think of like the worst possible posting you could get, it was Shiloh, Manitoba or uh, Wainwright, Alberta. Wainwright, Alberta is a town of 5,000, 2,000 plus or uh, military members and it's the largest training second largest training area in Canada and so uh, every three months there's about 15,000 troops that rotate through that town so if you can imagine the you know the populace does not have a fond feeling for military <laughs> members um, as far as um, the next phase of your career uh, you, you said you wanted to continue to serve and make it a lifetime thing physically were you okay at that point in time and was, was there anything that was preventing you physically from continuing to serve um no like that I, I had i had things that i had to work on and things that i had to struggle with but uh i definitely did not feel as though that it would alter the course of my career um i was really struggling with like my grip strength and uh the type of fitness that i was used to doing um things like that and i and i definitely struggled with the transition from a combat zone back to normal life, that was an extreme transitional issue for me. I, um, you know, in the first say month I got in like five fist fights. Like I was, uh, I was very much on edge. I'd spent 10 and a half months in a fob on 15 minutes notice to move at all times where there was constant, you know, combat ticks, um, explosions, things like that. So my, my fight or flight was on go at all times. Um, and so that transition was very rough. And like I talked about, you know, that first day back in, you know, your tan combats, I remember driving from my house at the time I drove a 79 uh, Chevy C10. It's just an old truck and um, coming out of uh, getting a coffee, coming out of the drive through about to turn onto a road uh, and somebody cuts me off. And I remember being my entire upper body out of the window and I'm through my coffee on their windshield and just like in a full rage. Um, and so, and then I was having these kind of like, you know, outbursts in public of violence. And so I remember going to the mental health 
on can't on base and saying like, Hey, like I'm assaulting people. Like there's something wrong. Like I need to kind of talk to somebody. I need to get sorted out. And, and their answer was, um, if it happens again, come back and see us. And so I, I was like, ah, I kind of feel like I'm on my own. And so I'm just going to learn how to adapt and how to kind of continue to serve and how to continue to be, you know, a vital part of my unit. Um, and so like many soldiers, I, I went down the route of avoidance. Um, I avoided video games, movies, music, books, anything that would give me a trigger, I completely avoided. And then that, um, like many soldiers know that that's, that's worse. That's one of the worst things you can do um, because of avoidance, you know, conflict avoided is conflict multiplied. So the longer I wait to deal with it, the worse it gets, the more entrenched in me it gets. Obviously your wife can see this behavior. Was she talking to you? Was she nervous? Was she scared? Did you ever lash out at her? No, I never lashed out at her, but we did at the time we lived in a house that was, uh, I want to say that we were about 10 houses away from a highway. And so there would be do 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 And it would be that noise of cars, the tires driving over the, yep. you know, the, the path. And it, and it, and I, and I just remember like thinking, oh, like it's machine gun fire. And it, it was like that for, you know, months and months to the point where it's like, okay, we need to, we need to move because I can't do this. Uh, at that point I was, um, you know, sleepwalking and checking, uh, uh, checking that doors are locked and windows are shut and, you know, kind of doing all those patterns, uh, and, you know, jumping out in bed and things like that. So, you know, my wife definitely 100% knew that things were going on. She's always been extremely supportive of me in what I'm doing and uh, encouraging me to go and uh, seek out help and, uh, ways that she can help me, uh, deal with it and, you know, it's, it, 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 it's unfair. It's unfair to her in some parts. Um, and it's, you know, <laughs> something that Jeff said that I, I, I always really love. He says, you know, it takes you, it takes them 10 years to train you to be the soldier you are. How long does it take them to untrain you? And so, and, and that transition is, is completely on your own. Um, it's, you know, you're trying to figure it out at the same time that you're, you know, you're, you're not going to tell your friends, you're not going to tell anybody on the base, you're not going to tell your supervisor because of the fear of, uh, well, now I'm not deployable. Now I'm not employable and I'm broken. And, you know, I'm just going to be kind of pushed aside. Looking back on it, uh, you mentioned the fight or flight. What other emotions, um, are you capable of recognizing at the time? And again, hindsight being 2020, obviously, you know, there's a lot of things you would tell yourself now about how to handle this, but what did you, what do you make of it now all these years down the road of, of what you were experiencing emotionally? Um, uh, it, it's tough because I've always been like, uh, I talked a little bit about how, you know, I grew up with some adversity and grew up a, a little rough, um, and so I always had to deal with that growing up. And so I just, I always, uh, as a young person, you think of it as resilience and you think of it as like, oh, I, I have like this superpower that I'm going to be able to get through anything. When in reality, it's like you're, you know, you're avoiding, you're pushing down, you're, you're, you know, you're dealing with it in ways that aren't healthy. And, and so that definitely caught up to me as I got older. Um, I, I, my emotions kind of up into that point were uh, happy, angry, normal. <laughs> like it's the most basic of emotional range. When do you ultimately get to a point where you realize that, Hey, I need help. Did something happen? Did, did something boil over the top? I mean, where, where it's like, uh, 
you know, I have to go start to handle this. Otherwise I'm going to end up dead or doing something I, I can't take back. It was um, uh, my exit interview from the military. I was uh, preparing for my release. Uh, and so you have now, to, did you decide to get out or they, they, they Canadian military said bye-bye? Yeah. Like I, I was getting ready to, I was getting ready to get out. I was, okay. I decided that I was going to move on. Uh, part of the reason, like looking back now as a, as a, a mature grown adult, looking back, a, a big reason why I got out of the military is because I was suffering with PTSD and I did not want to suffer with that in public and as a burden. Uh, so I, I made the decision that I was going to get out. There's, there's more factors to it as well, but you know, that did play a big factor. And so when I was getting out, I did my base interview exit interview with the base surgeon. And I said, Hey, listen, like I'm, I've been struggling with PTSD for a few years now. Um, I just want to make sure that, you know, there's some types of services or resources that I can get when I move back to Calgary um, that I can kind of get access to. And that was the first time that I'd ever said it out loud. Um, and, and so he kind of like took a step back and he said, you know, how long have you been dealing with this? And I said, uh, yeah, like since 2000 and 2010, when I got back, um, and so he said, you know what, we're going to get you kind of set up with some, uh, counseling on the base. So I'm going to give you the resources in Calgary. Like I was definitely helped out, treated very, very fairly, uh, given exactly what it was I needed, the resources, I had phone numbers, I had email. I, I was, I was ready when I got out. Um, and then when I got out, just like that transition from coming back from tour was tough. The transition getting out of the military was probably 10 times harder. Why? Uh, it's extremely isolating. Uh, in the military, you kind of have a mission and an ethos and you have, even if you're not standing beside someone, there's like that idea that we're working towards something together. Whereas when I got out of the military, I was completely on my own. Um, I was having these, uh, kind of like emotions of uh, abandonment and isolation and things like that. And, and so it was very difficult to kind of like get my feet under me in the civilian world when, you know, I wasn't sure I was even going to be able to make it. Like I, you know, you had those self doubts. Like uh, one thing that PTSD does is it, you know, it isolates you and it makes you think that you're the only person and you're that and this. And, and so when I got out, I was like, yeah, like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make this work, but I got to, I have to move on. It's time. I mean, you sort of self-diagnosed PTSD. Uh, and you know, this happens in 2010, uh, at least the onset of it. And you get out in 2013, but still at that time, PTSD, I don't know if it was a common thing in Canada. It was not a common thing in America in 2013. Like we didn't really grasp PTSD is an actual thing probably till about 2015, 2016, when we really started putting it out there in the ethos that it was, it was legitimate. Um, so, I mean, did you actually get a diagnosis from a medical doctor or, I mean, you, you, cause you seem to be so certain that you had it immediately. Yeah. So when I got out, I, I got connected with, um, a clinic in Calgary and I went and I did a diagnosis. Uh, they did a diagnosis with me when I was still in the military and found that I had PTSD. And then when I got out, I did another one with a civilian clinic and they both, and they both came to the same conclusion. So uh, I, I knew that something was off 
I knew that something was off. And um, in the Canadian military, there's been talks about PTSD for a very long time. There's okay. been talks. Um, yeah, and I, I didn't mean to come off sounding like I was questioning your whether the validity no, of it. I just, no. you know, it, again, it, it, at that time, it just wasn't something that was ever common and brought up. You know, I mean, like, like you said, at least in the American military, if you claim that you, know, you had combat stress or anything like that, you were seen as a wuss and, you know, it was just – Get out of here! You're gonna you're gonna hinder the mission. We can't deal with this stuff. We're not taking this person. With, you know, I mean, all those negative stereotypes you hear were actually legitimate things that were said and thought. Um, and to a certain extent, some of them are this day still to the American military. Like you said, I don't want to tell anybody because you know it could end my career. So um, I, that's where I was coming from with it. I, I didn't mean to come off like I was no. questioning you. Yeah, no, I, I fully grasp. Like, I it's it's the same. It's the exact same, right? Like in the Canadian military, like. Um, you'd see a guy came back from tour a new car and be like, Oh, PTSD stuff like that. So, but yeah, no, we, but in the Canadian military, we've been talking about PTSD since R- Rwanda. Uh, cause we had a general that came back a very high level general that, um, had PTSD and, and he really set the f- uh, foundation and the framework, uh, for soldiers to come forward. That doesn't mean that it was any easier to come forward. And I have to admit that, you know, even when I was out of the military, uh, the number one emotion that I dealt with was shame. And the shame was from talking to a professional saying that I, I just saying the word, like I'm struggling with this. I would feel like for, you know, a week or two, like I was at a party and I got drunk and I said something I shouldn't have said. And I would have this kind of like guilt and shame. Like I did something wrong by saying I'm struggling with this, just that alone. Where are you with it now? I mean, how much of a grasp do you, do you have on it? Yeah, it's a it's a gift and a curse to be born with awareness. Um, I've always been fair, fairly self aware, and so it's very difficult uh, when, as an aware person, to kind of be going through um, symptoms, signs and symptoms of PTSD. Because I can trigger, I, I know what the, what the trigger is, I know what connects, and I know where it's going, and I like. So it's it's difficult, yeah, and it's uh, I, I lived with having uh, uh, you know panic attacks every night before I went to sleep for, you know, years, um, before I kind of got that corrected. Um, and, and really like what it was that I needed to correct was like my ability to allow myself to have certain feelings. Obviously you're here telling your story. So the shame portion of things, uh, is, is clearly dissipated, but how long and hard of a process is it for that? Um, for you to get to a point where you're comfortable and accepting of, Hey, I need help. Um, yeah. So I, I saw it like at the, at the time as well, I was, you know, I was out of the military and I was coaching, I was, I was, um, coach for basketball. And, you know, as you know, right now in society, there's a big push, uh, for talking about mental health and things like that. And so, you know, it was coming up more and more with kids that I was coaching and, uh, people that I was around and then these kind of like words were being said. And, and then it's like, okay, well, how can I, how can I mentor someone else or how can I give someone else advice? If, um, you know, if I'm not following that advice myself. And, and another thing is that I have two young children and I, I want to live a long, happy life. I don't want to, I don't want my time in the military to, um, you know, put a strain on their emotional barriers. I don't want um, when I go to a party to have to have this like exit strategy of words talked out with my wife, I don't want to have 
family members where I feel like there's a drawbridge between us because I'm afraid of conversations. I don't, I don't want to live like that. Um, and so in order for me to get past that, I have to deal with it. And it's not, it's not about, um, you know, preparing the road for me. It's about preparing myself to be on the road. What's the biggest thing you still struggle with in terms of PTSD today? The biggest thing I struggle with. Uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's knowing what my, what my boundaries are, um, but still wanting to test them. Um, and, and knowing another part that I find very difficult is that I know how much damage it's done to me, um, for my, you know, my life expectancy and things like that, dealing with stress. Like, um, I don't, I don't want anyone that's around me to feel as though they have to walk on eggshells because of conversations. And I don't want to live like I'm walking on eggshells around other people. And so it's just that, that relationship barrier. I think a really big aspect of it was like, I wanted to have a full relationship with my son and I wanted to have a full relationship with my daughter and I wanted to have a full relationship with my wife. And in order for that to do that, I had to remove those, those barriers of communication. You mentioned earlier that it wasn't one specific incident. It was the just the sustained stress over, you know, nearly a year period. I I know there's. Not, let me just phrase this way. You know, if if Ian right now was going to go back and tell Ian before the deployment, "Hey, man, you need to figure out a way to chill out." Would Ian have been able to been capable? of doing that had he had the tools? I guess the better way to phrase it, do you look back now and realize that you had the tools to cope with it back then and just didn't use them properly? Or were you somebody who didn't, wasn't able to just, that was just a natural reaction for you to keep your stress level there? Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely didn't have the tools. I, I had a, you know, that cloak of invincibility, that, that arrogance, that, that immaturity of a young man of, you know, I, I'm resilient. I can get through anything. You don't know what I've been through in my life. This is nothing like, you know, like so many people that grew up, like, uh, grew up inner city, Calgary. Um, I know American viewers might not know what that means, but it's, you know, uh, there's poverty and there's crime and there's drugs and there's things like that all over. Uh, Calgary is no exception. Calgary is a city of 1.3 million people. So we have pockets. Um, I grew up very poor, uh, single mom, uh, with, uh, mental health issues herself. And so, you know, we would go through, you know, six months periods with no lights in the apartment and it would just be the two of us eating, you know, ramen noodles for, you know, for weeks on end. And so I had this, like, oh, I can get through anything. Like you, you put anything, any roadblock in front of me, I'm going to make it work. Don't worry. So all of this going on, when do you get to the point where you start to develop uh, Athletic Edge and Canada Top Flight Academy West? These are the two uh, yeah. sort of companies and foundations that you're, you're, you're putting together now at this point in your life. I mean, you mentioned earlier being an athlete, so I know that's where it generally comes from. But so, so how does this all develop and when does it develop? Yeah. So when I got out of the military, um, I ended up going to work up north in the oil field in Canada. And, and I did that for about eight months. And it just it wasn't for me. It was when you say north. How far north are we talking? Uh, Fort St. John. That doesn't it's help north. me. You got to get any I I better. I, I got to get out of, if I have to get out of a map, we're in trouble. Yeah, no, it's it's north. OK. It's, All right. Like you're, you're, you're polar bears. Like, gotcha. <laughs> okay. That's good enough. It's a good enough reference. No, like, yeah, there's black bears and grizzly bears. Like close to Alaska kind of north? 
Uh, so it's on the highway to Alaska. The so highway in Alaska? I thought they only used dogs. No, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, so I, I got out of the military and I was uh, making that transition and I really did not like what I was doing. I didn't like the isolation. I got out of the military because I wanted to be around my family more. Um, but now I was working a rotation of, you know, 22 days gone, a week home. And it was just like, yeah, this isn't, this is, this is worse. Um, and so I was really kind of trying to figure out how I was going to transition out of doing that. And I got a call from my uh, veterans affairs case manager and said, Hey, did you know that you're eligible to go to university? And so I said, I didn't know that. Um, but that, you know, I, I'd never really thought about going back to university. And so, you know, I started to kind of think about like, oh, well, what should I do? And they said, you know, come up with a plan of what, you know, how you want to attack this. And so I decided that I was going to take what's called uh, occupational health and safety um, through the University of Calgary. Uh, and then I finished that certificate program and then I ended up doing a diploma program through the University of New Brunswick. Um, but while I was doing this, I was doing it all online. Like I would go to, you know, a couple classes here and there in person, but majority of it was online. And so I had a lot of free time where I could kind of figure out what I wanted to do and I could kind of reintroduce myself into society. And so I, I ended up, you know, just starting to play basketball again as just being myself and being an athlete and just getting out there. Um, and I met uh, two brothers, uh, Alex and Bars, and um, Alex was uh, preparing to go play pro basketball overseas and I kind of came up in conversation that I had played pro basketball before I joined the military. And so we decided. Wait, you, you skipped know, over that part like, earlier. You played pro basketball? Yeah, like nothing's nothing. No, but I mean, still, like pro international. Ba- hey, Steve, Steve Nash played pro basketball in Canada. No, but, I mean, but seriously, like you yeah. left that part out. That's a, a pretty decent detail. Yeah, like I, I grew up playing basketball. I was uh, pretty good. Like uh, baseball is my favorite sport, but basketball was the sport that I was I was good at. Like I just kind of excelled at. You know, I'm um, a six foot three, two hundred and twenty pound point guard in high school. Like, there yeah, wasn't a lot I didn't of have that there. problem in high school. But that wasn't <laughs> yeah, like kids were getting in. I don't the have way. that problem now, for the record. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, after high school, I actually went and played pro basketball before I went to university. So I went and played uh, basketball in Holland. Um, and then when I, uh, I decided that I just wanted to come back to Canada and I wanted to go to university. So I went to University of Calgary for, you know, about a year. And then that's when I decided I was going to join the military. Um, but when I got out and it was like, yeah, like you're going to go back to university. It's like, I don't know what I'm going to take. Like, I don't want to go back and take what I was taking before. I want to take something different. And so um, I started uh, training uh, Alex, who was preparing to go play pro overseas himself. Um, and that kind of like, as that worked out and it, as it evolved, um, you know, other guys that were looking to go play college or university or pro, uh, just started kind of approaching me and asking me for advice and help and things like that. And so I just kind of slowly started to develop this, this clientele and like, and it's, it's hard to say clientele. They're like, I started to develop friends that I would train with. Um, and then, uh, I was coaching a high school team at the time, Western Canada High School, um, and I was at a game, and a friend of mine that I grew up with, um, Lance Milton, who's at the game with his uh, with his girlfriend, and we just started talking, and it's like, yeah, what are you doing now? And he's like, oh, yeah, I just retired from the Canadian uh, Football League. Uh, I played professional football in Canada, and so he's like, yeah, I just retired from football, and now I'm, uh, you know, I'm 
I'm looking at, I'm doing strength training. I said, Oh yeah, that's awesome. I said, yeah, I just got out of the army and I'm, and I'm doing skill development for basketball. And I, and we just kind of were talking like, Oh, well maybe one day we could kind of do something together and we could figure out how we could make that work together. Uh, and so, you know, we just kind of kept the conversation going and eventually um, I just, we rolled the basketball guys that I was training with skill development and we decided that we were going to do a three month uh, strength training program with them. And so we rolled them in and it just kind of, it, we got like unbelievable success out of that, that combination of skill, strength, conditioning, and uh, my military kind of discipline factor. It, it, it just was like this, this kind of perfect blend. Uh, we talk about like Lance, Lance is a, a finishing man, like he's a finishing hammer and I'm a sledgehammer. Um, he can kind of like precisely build the body in a certain way with like a, a very professional mindset. Whereas like, I'm going to break your body and I'm going to build your mind back stronger than ever before. And so that balance of when to push and when to pull and when to like, and it just kind of started to come together. And those first kind of two years, we call the Petri dish years. Like I'm surprised we didn't kill somebody. <laughs> Like some of the things that we got these guys to do and the way we were training them and, 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 and but it, but it showed, uh, we were having kids that, um, uh, like there's a kid named Minyang Tong. I talk about him all the time. He's one of my favorite kids, um, grew up in what's called the Southeast forest lawn area of Calgary, a very impoverished, uh, community. He comes from South Sudanese background, um, great family, great parents, but like trouble, it's like it's troublesome neighborhood, troublesome influences. And so he was a really good basketball player, extremely athletic, but very thin. And so we said, you know, Min Yang, if you really want to take it to that next level, you got to, you got to start weight training. Uh, so he trained with us for about eight months. And then the next season uh, he had kind of like this pivotal moment where, you know, he's playing a 40 minute game. There's 38 minutes into the game. He dunks on two kids. Um, this video goes viral um, and, and, and that, and that possession put the game, put his team up by, by a point. And then it was kind of like the ceiling moment for the rest of that game. Uh, and, and it just kind of like started to spiral. We started to have these uh, other kids that were having these great successes ending up going to, uh, junior colleges and kids going D one and, you know, kids playing football in California. And, and, and so we really started to get this really snowball effect of, of, of great success. And it was based off, um, the baseline of drink water, eat proper food, uh, sleep, have good conversations and train in a disciplined way. Very military like. Very. <laughs> Not reinventing yeah. the wheel, right? I mean, Hey, listen, uh, in the army, we're very copycat about a lot of things that work. If it's not broken, don't fix it. If the formula is there, use it and take advantage of it. I mean, that's awesome. And, and, I assume one of the other joys of doing all this, it's not that you're just producing great athletes and they're going on to other things, but you, you found that camaraderie you were looking for and that ability, um, you know, somebody to look out for, right? Like you always talked about, there's always somebody there that you have to care for. Even if you're alone, you know, that there's somebody else there that you have to, you have to look after. I think that's probably a big part of it for you. Oh, yeah. There was definitely a time where it was, you know, I was helping others as a way to help myself. Um, because I felt, you know, my emotions were out of control and my life was, you know, I was trying to hold it together and it felt a little shaky. Um, but if I turned around and I helped a young man kind of figure out his way to get to university, it was like this 
gratification that I got that I was able to help him. Um, and it became, uh, you know, addictive and I, and I love it. And I love, uh, I, I say that I'm not, I'm not in the strength and conditioning business. I'm in the relationship built business. I, I build relationships with athletes. I, I learn their goals. I learn their motivations. I learn those things. And then, and then I, and then I hold them accountable to their words. If you say you want to do this, well, these are the, you know, the day-to-day things that you have to do in order to make those a success. Do the kids who you train know about your military experience? Do they ask you questions about it? And are you, are you free with them to talk about your experience? Yes. Like they, uh, they know that majority of them know that I was in the military. They don't know what I did. And I don't, um, I, I, I don't romanticize, you know, Oh, it was awesome. I did this. Like, I don't, I don't do that. Right. Um, I, I have a very hard time, um, discussing, uh, military, my military history with people that I don't think they have a full grasp of it. Um, on the mental side and the, the repercussions and things like that. And so I, I, I don't kind of do those conversations. However, um, if I build a trust level with you and I think that it add context to what it is we're talking about, then I will absolutely have those conversations. Well, and I, I only ask that because you said before, have good conversations, right? Like these are, sometimes these are conversations that young people need to hear uh, for oh, yeah. perspective, um, to understand that the world extends beyond their certain sphere of influence. Right. Um, and, and I just, you know, I've heard you say a couple of times, you don't like to have conversations with people about the military experience. I, we can have it because we've shared an experience, right? We, I, you don't have to say much for me to understand what you're talking about. I I can connect with you on that level because I've been through similar experiences. Is that some of your hesitation of talking about it? Is that the, the lack of relatability by certain people? Well, I just don't want to give people the wrong, um, the wrong idea of me. I don't want to give people this like, um, Oh, you know, he's telling war stories all the time. Like, I don't want that to be my narrative because I, I I want that when I do share those, those stories that they have some validity, have some context and they have some value to add to what we're discussing. I absolutely have had many very deep conversations with people that um, have zero military background. Uh, I've had those conversations, um, but it's never about like, hey, let me tell you this story. Uh, it's never like, oh, we've had a couple of beers now. Hey, Ian, why don't you tell me this story? And it's it's never that. That's never the delivery. It's it's more um, this has happened in someone's life. And then I I can relay it to, you know, something that I've gone through um, on my own. Obviously, this isn't something that you you cure, right? You just live with it and you manage it. Um, that said, would you do anything different that you think or in retrospect, something may have prevented it, mitigated it, changed where you are with it today, as far as the level of what you're dealing with? Um, it's, it's tough to say, because like I said, there was a few reasons why I got out of the military. Uh, one of the reasons why I got out was when I got posted to Wainwright, my wife had just kind of finished her university uh, education. And so um, when we got to Wainwright, there was no employment opportunities for her. And so I, I found it to be uh, uh, selfish in nature for me to stay there, to further my career, to keep my children away from their grandparents and their cousins uh, and my wife away from something that would make her feel fulfilled as well. Uh, so it was kind of, it was just time, like it was time to move on. And so in moving to Calgary, she was able to have 
the career and the field that she studied. Uh, I was able to reinvent myself and, you know, um, meet friends and family, reconnect with people that I grew up with. And then um, we, I, me and Lance, my business partner, we had an idea that was like, okay, within five years, we're going to start a prep school for basketball. That was always kind of the goal in mind. Um, and then at the time that year five kind of rolled around, we really were kind of like, it was something that we we're definitely still thinking about and we were trying to figure out how we can make it work. And then a, a really good high level coach named Adam Huffman came on the market. And so we kind of swooped in and we talked to him. And then during a COVID year, we were able to, to string it together with, um, you know, 16 paying kids for a basketball program with no competition in Canada, there was no competition. Uh, so we were able to string it together uh, with their strength and conditioning and skill development. And we placed 100% of our players um, at colleges or universities. In America too? Uh, we had, uh, we, we've had some kids go down to the States. We had a kid, uh, his name's Fofo. He's at the university of Maine. Uh, we have another, uh, kid, uh, Jashawn, he's at, uh, university of Bradley. So we, we've had like, and, and, and saying we, this is like the Royal, we, uh, Adam Huffman has had a very long history of doing very well, placing kids where they're meant to be. And it's not, so there's a misconception in the prep basketball world of what it is that you're paying for and what it is that it's, you're getting out of it. Um, the number one thing uh, I tell people is that what you're getting out of it is a, an adult, a reference that's going to be willing to make 40, 60, 80 hours of phone calls on your behalf to find you the school. That's not the highest level school, but the highest level that you fit the culture and you will be able to thrive and be successful at. What would you tell somebody either in the American military or the Canadian military, if, if you suspected that they were struggling with PTSD or, you know, you could see some of the signs and symptoms of it. Um, how do you approach somebody like that? Like, what would you say to somebody? Yeah. I mean, I've, we, I've had those conversations with friends, uh, people that are close to me that are struggling with alcoholism or drug use or, um, what's really scary and what's, I think it's, it's definitely not talked about enough is that I've, I've, I've had more loss from military uh, on the civilian side or post Afghanistan than I did in Afghanistan. Like we had uh, people that died and uh, people that were injured and all those types of horrific battlefield things. However, um, the numbers are far su surpassed on the civilian side. I've had numerous friends that have committed suicide, friends that are homeless, friends that are addicted to drugs and alcohol, um, friends that have died in motorcycle crashes, like uh, all those types of things. I've had fr um, a friend of mine, he, you know, he was out hiking and he tragically died while hiking. Like I've had, we've had so many different kind of things happen um, with our, with our core group that it's, um, it's, it's tough. It's, it's scary. And I mean, we're like, we're not old, but we're getting older, but it, it just happens to feel as though that we're losing brothers at a rate that is far too young for their expiry dates. Yeah. Uh, by the way, you're not making Canada sound as lovely as I had a perception of. I mean, I always, you know, north of the border, it's like the greatest place to go. There's nothing ever wrong in Canada. I mean, the few times I've been there, I've loved every minute of it. But now you're making me question whether I want to go to Canada at some point in time. No, Canada's amazing. I love Canada. You can smile at people. You can nod. You can, uh, you know, you can, you can walk and talk. And it's, I, I love it here. I love Canada with all my heart, for sure. 
Well, it's an, an, an incredible story as far as, you know, your resiliency. Um, and I think the message that you've presented to the audience, um, you know, as far as living and, and uh, managing PTSD is an important one. Uh, and it's different for everybody, right? There's no cookie cutter way to deal with it because everybody, you know, the, the sensory perception of everybody sees the world differently, you know, and, and so their responses to it are different. So the, 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 for you, it's always it's always like, you know, as we do this show and we talk to more and more people and see what they deal with, you, you can't help but be thankful that somebody has figured out their way through this. Um, because again, there's not a simple roadmap. It's not a, a broken arm, put a cast on it. You know, it's not a, uh, a toothache. Let's just fill a cavity. You know, it's, it, there, there's nothing that's that simple about PTSD and, and, um, the way you convey it, you know, it just seems like you have such a good grasp on what you're feeling, how you're feeling it and how to, uh, keep yourself on even keel, so to speak. Well, we're also in the, uh, you gotta say that of all times to be a soldier forever, uh, we're in the kind of the golden age, um, especially Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, there was more money. Uh, there was more public support. Uh, there was more resources. There was more knowledge. There was like, we had, um, as much as it was a, you know, terrible experiences and whether people believed in the cause or not, or whatever, we are, we have more resources and abilities to kind of have, have lives afterwards. Um, that stigma of shame and that stigma of silence is, is much less than it was for generations previous. You have to think, you know, Vietnam, they didn't get the warmest, um, reception coming back. Whereas from Afghanistan, uh, in my experience, everyone I ever kind of came in contact with either was grateful or, um, thanked me. And if they didn't, they didn't say anything. Wow. Uh, you're a sacrifice medal, the American or the Canadian version of the purple heart. Where is it? Do you, do you have it? Do you display it? Do your kids see it? Yeah. I wear it once a year for remembrance day. And other than that, I keep it in with my watch collection. <laughs> uh, my, yeah, my, uh, my kids have seen it and they, uh, they don't quite understand what it's about, but they know, like my son knows that, you know, that I went to, I went to war and, um, you know, he says, dad, I don't want to ever go to war. And I said, that's fine, buddy. You can, you know, you can live the life that you want. And, um, and that's, what's great about our society is that, um, there are, there's enough people that are willing to kind of step up and you do do what needs to be done. That, um, there's a lot of other people that can, you know, chase their dreams and, you know, live out their fantasies. Well, again, for everybody uh, listening and watching, if you're interested in Athletic Edge, our website is uh, athleticedgecalgary.ca. And for the Canada Top Flight Academy West, it's just uh, ctawest.com if you guys are interested. But uh, I can't, again, I can't thank you enough for for sharing your story and for uh, opening up to us and and the audience. I, I think it's super important. And every time somebody does this, hopefully it gives somebody else the strength and courage to want to share their story and, and go talk to somebody. And they, they see that there is a path out, right? Again, it's not, everyone's not going to take the same path, but there is a light at the end of that tunnel. And so I certainly thank you for, uh, for sharing all those words with us and the audience. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's such an honor to be on with, you know, some of the great uh, guests that you've had. Um, thank you for having uh, your second Canadian on. <laughs> Ian Cantello. Thank you for being part of the hazard ground. You've been listening to Killcliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell, 
and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.